I'm Andrew Zaki. This is the From the Pews podcast, where we have conversations about truth, culture, love, and power from a Christian perspective. My guest today is Dr. Jeannie Constantino. She's a lawyer, author, Bible scholar, retired professor with over 40 years experience teaching. She holds five degrees in theology. And on top of all of that, uh, she's a presbytero, which in English is a priest's wife. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Jeannie. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Of all those titles and, and accomplishments is there one that is uh, particularly uh, special to you well obviously being married that's a very <laughs> important thing uh, being a mom that's a very important thing in terms of uh, in terms of my uh, well obviously the phd becoming dr genie as opposed to that was oh, also very important but to tell you the truth the most difficult thing is the one thing you didn't mention is my law degree Passing the California bar was the most difficult thing. Yeah, I had to do that was, and you're an attorney, so you understand that. But you're kind of young, so the bar exam used to be three days, and it was torture. Studying I'm not that it, young. I was the I was the last the uh, last class no to kidding. do the three day one. No kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did the last three day one, and then and then they switched it to two. And I think they're they're gonna they're they're keeping i feel like they're they continuously lower the standard for entry um but yeah, i was I gonna say it, it was definitely weeded out a lot of people i don't know why they changed it but that's a little bit yeah. off our topic isn't it so is that is that a of all of your kind of careers and things you've done is that the only thing you would consider kind of secular uh, well, you know, in college, I had a job, you know, at a sandwich place and things like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, gotcha. I didn't do anything else for work that I can think of. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was always teaching. I did teach um, music uh, to second through fifth graders, and I taught religion to seventh and eighth graders before law school. Then after that, I worked in the law. So uh, for different places, yeah. Gotcha. But for a majority of your life, you've been dedicated to the church, church studies, teaching, yes, I scholarship. Was doing that, yeah. I was doing that even before because I was a theology major in college. And then I met my husband while I was in college. And once we got married and he was ordained, we began serving parishes. So I was definitely mm -hmm. doing that. Even I think before I met him, I think it was teaching Sunday school. And also I was a youth advisor, youth director. So mm -hmm. I was very involved in the church even before we met, not, not surprisingly. 
So yeah, that, that's I think definitely the majority of my my career, if you call. It. But it wasn't a paid career. I was just helping at the church and just reading on my own and getting degrees and things like that. Yeah, a lot of people I think uh, stop there, um, serving at church, maybe maybe a bachelor's degree and and something religion related, but. You took yes. it way, way beyond that. What sparked that kind of interest in you and and, and desire to just keep on going? Well, um, my I, I really focused a lot on scripture for my undergraduate degree. I took as many scripture classes as I could. And because uh, we were serving parishes, we had Bible studies and retreats. I was really using that information a lot. And when we returned to San Diego because father served first in Sacramento, then in Camarillo, which is about an hour north of LA, for those who don't know, Ventura County was his next parish. And then when we returned to San Diego, they had a master's program at the University of San Diego, which I had attended as an undergrad. And I wasn't really intending to um, get another degree because I was already, you know, working as a lawyer. Um, but but uh, I found my, um, my bachelor's degree so useful. I mm. thought I would just get the master's since I was there and they gave me a scholarship and they had a, a really nice program in that it was set up that you met, the class met once a week from four to seven. So I could finish working during the day, finish my go to class from four to seven and still be at church for a meeting at night. So. Uh, and it was, you know, it was just an MA, so it wasn't a very lengthy degree, very demanding, but I just decided to do that. Then I had my son, and I said, I'm done. I'm not going to do anything more, and I thought I was finished, but then we moved to the East Coast, and my husband started nagging me to go further and to get a PhD, mm-hmm. and I was really not interested at the time because I had a little baby. He was only a year old, and I hoped to have other children. So I didn't think I was going to do anything at that time, but he was very persistent. He really felt that I had talent. That's what he said. You have talent and I don't want to see you waste it. And um, I thought, well, I'll wait a few years, but I didn't have any idea how much more study was involved for a PhD. So once I realized that after my son was a bit older, I didn't want to leave him in a daycare situation or anything like that. There was a lady we met at church who had a grandson that she was looking out for. So after my son was about three and old enough to, to talk and communicate with me if there was a problem, that was my concern. I would never want to put an infant in a situation where they couldn't yeah, speak, yeah. you know. So once he was three, I started going to school part-time. And that's one reason why it took so long. And then I got mm-hmm. a couple more degrees and finally the PhD. So I didn't really plan it that way. Yeah, and, and I wasn't saying I want to go to school some more, even though I enjoyed <laughs> it. Even though I enjoyed it, it really—I just intended to help as much as I could with my husband and stay home and make stew and, you know, <laughs> it was New England. We were in New England by then. Yeah. Watch the snow fall. You know, I had these romantic notions that I would be <laughs> cooking stew. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, and it, it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> I haven't made too many quilts. Yeah, in my in my eyes, um, you're a trailblazer in many ways because oh, I don't I don't know of many uh, many women who have, have rigorously kind of pursued theology and gotten so many degrees and yeah, well, uh, at least in the Orthodox Church, 
Yeah. Am I wrong to say that uh, your husband um, encouraging you was maybe kind of un like that would have been uncommon at the time? To, I think to encourage think a woman to pursue yeah. kind of her PhD in theology and things well, like yeah, that. I'm glad you asked the question. It, it's, I mean, definitely there are more women now. There weren't a lot of women. As a matter of fact, at the time I was really focusing on scripture. I didn't know any other, I think a handful of Orthodox New Testament scholars, they were like on one hand, how many people you could count. Now there were women who were maybe in, church history or theology or something like this, but there weren't nearly as many uh, women theologians as there are today. We have more of them now. I don't know uh, about for New Testament, um, but it was it unusual. I think so um, because let's, let's face it, uh, there's a lot of um, demands on uh, a priest and he kind of needs his wife to support him to be home, but part of it, the reason why it was possible really was that I only ended up having one child, not by my choice, but I really wanted more, but they didn't come. So if I had more, I think it might've been kind of impossible. Yeah. And um, because it's a, you know, you have to be there for your kids, you know, you know mm -hmm. that they have to come first. And my husband was very understanding, very supportive. And I only took one semester full time because and that semester was really hard. So it, it, if you, you can be a mom and a wife and go back to school, but you have to limit it to one course or maybe two courses, because not only do you need to study, but you become stressed and it's just not right for the family. So um, it's unusual, I think more so because um, it's because he's Greek <laughs> and probably like the Egyptians. They, you know, want their wife to be not necessarily just staying home because I know that the cops are very, um, are really achievers too, but mm -hmm. it does take time away from the home and family and it costs money. So I think, I think what I get out of that, whether it's a man or a woman, whoever it is, when you choose somebody to be married, to your that person should be someone who wants you to achieve your full potential mm. that doesn't mean that the marriage takes second place but but that, that 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 person really sees your talents and wants to see you blossom even if it's at the expense of spending time with them and frankly that's still happening now because i'm gone a lot i'm gone at least half of the weekends out of the year and i leave my husband by himself you know yeah. So it's, it's a real sacrifice, but he is willing to do that. And when he wanted to leave to get his, to finish his PhD, I said, okay, let's go. Let's, I didn't want to ever hold him back. Yeah. And he never wanted to hold me back. And that takes a person who has a generous spirit and who really loves you. And right. that's what I would encourage, whether it's a man or a woman, not somebody who's only thinking about themselves. Do you think the that 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 advice is different if the application of your pursuits are different? Because oh. you're pursuing something godly, obviously. And yes, yeah. Well, it kind church. of depends. Mm -hmm. well, well, let's say let's say I had because I, I got my law degree after I was married, mm -hmm. so um, uh, he that took a lot of time away from him. 
also that was even more demanding because that was full time. We didn't have any children at the time, but I was very talented as a lawyer. I was a very good lawyer and I have a very good mind for the law. And he was 100% behind me on that also. So um, it was the people in the parishes that I was, it was doing the Bible study for. They say, oh, we like Presbyterian's Bible study. At first it kind of hurt him because they said that they liked my Bible study more than his, although I thought his was better. They liked mine because I was taking a very historical kind of approach to it. They thought, found it very fascinating. Father was more about discussion, about the spiritual application. So um, at first, I think it, it kind of hurt his feelings. But later, he, he kind of said, well, she's got something good yeah. to offer. Um, I think that that applies. So you answer your question. It applies regardless of what it is that you're doing. Because everybody has talents in different areas. Um, and between husband and wife, you want to be sure that there's a balance, that, that the family doesn't suffer because the wife or the husband is trying to improve themselves in this area, whatever it is. So there's a certain balance. And I tell women, I meet a lot of women who say, I want to do what you do. I want to go back to school. And I say, you can do it all, but not all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so when my son was young, I was spending, I didn't have a picture of him because he was always with me. I didn't carry a picture of him in his wallet, in my wallet, because he was always with me. I, I wouldn't go anywhere unless mm -hmm. I could take him. Um, so that's, that's not, we can do a lot of things, but not all at the same time. Some mm -hmm. things we have to postpone until we're later. I didn't get my PhD until I was 50. So, uh, you know, I wasn't one of those 30 year old because I would have a different career. If I got a PhD at age 30, I would have been producing much, many more books and things like that. But, you yeah. know, so. Another kind of another angle of this that I'm interested in hearing your perspective on. Have you ever heard of uh, Dr. Scott Barchi? No. Okay. He was a professor of mine. Uh, when I was an undergrad, he taught early Christian history, mm -hmm. and he told uh, he told me one time about one of his colleagues' daughters um, who applied for a teaching position at some seminary or theological school or something, and she was denied because she was a woman. Um, okay, where when was this? Well, I when was I was in his class? Like I don't know, this was like eight years ago, oh, no, like so ten years ago. <laughs> but I don't remember what the school is. Oh, so I don't what the school was because that happened to me once also, mm -hmm. um, but not in an Orthodox institution. It was um, when we lived in Camarillo, California, and I was interested in continuing to take some classes in theology in that city. There's a, a Catholic seminary called St. John's. And I went there and asked if I could take classes. And they said, no, they don't, because it was a Catholic seminary. It was full of men. And they said, only if you're a nun, can you take classes here? And I said, well, I'm married. And I'm married to a priest, but they didn't care. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Um, no, Other I than that. Heard of that. But I suppose there, if, if it's that kind of a very conservative Catholic seminary, they might say no. They probably still do in Camarillo. Okay. I don't know. That was a long time ago. Yeah, but other than that experience and kind of your uh, journey, you never felt uh, 
that you were treated different or discouraged because you were no i think that i think what happens that's different that was actually more of an issue when i was a lawyer Mm. um at that time that i became a lawyer in 1985 majority of lawyers were men and there was a big disparity and some of them didn't want to um you know see me at a deposition or something like that they they actually a couple of some i said i don't think women should be lawyers so but not in theology the the issue in theology if you go to study someplace other than an orthodox school will be that you're an orthodox christian and that has become there's more i would say discrimination in non-Orthodox schools against Orthodox students, especially if they want to do scripture studies. And I know that that's happened because I've heard about it and I've seen it, I've heard from professors. And um, one of my friends who's, an, who's a Coptic nun um, applied, she was top student, of course, you cops are always these outstanding students. She was a top student, a friend of mine at Harvard. And, um, they didn't accept her because they said, well, what kind of dissertation could she write? In other words, yeah. she can't do objective historical research. She's going to be colored by this, like, I don't know what they thought she was going to write. She would have been excellent. So Harvard mm-hmm. didn't. And I, I asked them because I, she told me she wasn't accepted. She went, she, I went to um, the professor who was in charge of the you know, little committee of professors for accept, admittance. I think she was ahead of me in school and i was thinking of applying myself and um they said well we said they actually actually told me if you could imagine that well you know we said well she's an orthodox nun what kind of but i've had other people say that the orthodox aren't capable of doing good scholarship and that that's because there are certain conclusions that we will not reach okay so if i'm studying like the baptism of jesus um, I'm never going to say that he came to be baptized because he has sins, okay? I'm never going to say that. So they consider that to be that you're un, you know, that, that you're not being objective. So oh. our faith um, is always going to affect how we interpret the Bible, and they don't believe that it should. Yeah. And it's almost um, like a. It's almost like you would be kind of boring because you wouldn't be coming up with anything novel. Well, they, they think that you're, you have to be objective. And what they consider that to be is you remove any faith from mm. your, as a part of the equation of your interpretation. And of course, they also don't respect the tradition of the church as being any kind of um, illumination or providing anything useful in your inter- the modern in your interpretation, modern stuff is fine. So one of my friends who was also a Harvard student and he got his PhD from Harvard um, said that, that that they like early church but not past the second century. He said he had to drag them kicking and screaming into the third and fourth centuries. Okay, they, they consider that too late, you know. So I I, yeah. I mean I applied to Harvard and I got um, I I could I think I could have. Uh, a, been accepted because they knew me really well and I wasn't a nun that I might have been able to meet that hurdle but in the meantime I decided that you know to go someplace else so I ended up going to Laval because Harvard was very inflexible in certain ways has a has religious academia gone super woke as well you've been around it for a while ridiculous Mm -hmm. absolutely ridiculous it's very sad very very sad um, so now nowadays it's hard to get a 
a teaching position unless you're, especially if you're a white male, you almost could forget about that. And even a female, um, you know, they, they label you and, and being a traditional Christian, you know, that's frowned upon. So it's really, it's really difficult, but some people are, are able to, I didn't, I didn't have a problem while I was teaching at the university because my courses, I was just teaching Bible, really didn't involve those kinds of issues like transgender or things like this. So um, it didn't, I didn't come under the radar and I just didn't participate in a lot of the, the nonsense. But if I had been a tenured professor and they wanted me to, to head up some kind of a committee that promoted that, then that would have been an issue. You know, but I, I wasn't, so I was spared from that. Yeah. How is your teaching in schools different than your teaching in the church? Um, well, when I was, it is going to be a little bit different, mm -hmm. um, although it's largely the same. When I'm teaching at Holy Cross, which I did for a year, a Greek Orthodox school of theology, then I'm able to relate whatever the reading was to where that fits in our lectionary and talk more about the theology that that's that is um, that is reflects in the church or how it's reflected by the theology of the church more directly. Um, if I'm if I'm at the Coptic school of theology, which I was for several years, Acts, your lectionary is different than ours. So I can't make that. I can still talk about the theology of the church, how it relates to that gospel passage but not, or the fathers, but not mm -hmm. so much about the lectionary. At the university, um, there, most of the students were not Orthodox and I couldn't, it was kind of pointless to explain how this relates to Orthodox theology or what the fathers said about it. Because now I could say in the ancient church, they were saying this and this and that, and I did that, but I didn't really reference specific fathers because it didn't mean anything to them. Yeah. You know, St. Cyril of Alexandria said this, or Chrysostom said that, you know, I would be more generic. Um, but definitely, even at the university, I taught from a perspective of faith. And um, not in a very, I don't know, was it overbearing way, but simply that they could tell that I was a person of faith. And I was enthusiastic about this subject. And I talked about it like it really mattered. And these things as though they were really true, as opposed to saying, oh, this is a myth. Jesus never healed anybody. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. There was a lot. There was plenty of that. Okay. I was yeah. the only person by the end, when I finally stopped teaching, which was just a couple of years ago, I was the only person who was saying, yeah, these things really happened. Jesus really rose from the dead. You know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a lot of nonsense. There's a lot of garbage theology out there. And it's sad because now the, the person that they're hiring uh, to replace me, there are going to be people who have this idea. And it's very sad because so many students really want to believe that this is what I was finding with, with my undergraduate students. They really want to have faith. Mm. And just by saying, yes, this is true. There's a lot to believe. The, the, there's a lot to, to support the fact that the Bible is true. Um, you know, and you can be a person, they know I was a lawyer and everything, you can be an intelligent person and still believe in the Bible that it's true. You can be a person of faith and be a scientist. And I was 
promoting that to give them the permission to mm -hmm. be a person of faith. And unfortunately, it seems like even in, in the theology departments, they're trying to destroy your faith, not, um, what can I say, um, support it. And I, I really shudder to think of uh, all the souls that have been damaged by that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. So I so stayed as long as I could. I did what I could. And then I had to, at some point, you have to stop, you know? Right. Now, in terms of actually in the church do you do you have a role there as well um well, teaching like sunday school or, or no because uh for a couple of reasons first of all father plus is retired now we don't have a parish when i go to church we have a little chapel and we liturgize at home some sundays when i go to church i like to sing in the choir um i did that i did sunday school bible classes retreats for a long time um but not, not currently, and also partly, probably, first of all, because I, I like to be in the church. And um, they, it's, they, they, students are, at least where I go to, the, the Greek Orthodox Church that I attend, they're in church for the most of the liturgy, but then they leave and they go to Sunday school. Um, I don't think that I can really, that's the best use of my time uh -huh. at this point, because it's very basic. And a lot of people could do that level. I don't mean to sound like I'm superior to that or anything like right, that. Right. I did that for many years. But at this point, I'm traveling a lot and I'm writing and my time is better spent um, producing materials or speaking to larger audiences. So I'm gone a lot. And frankly, that's why I retired from teaching at the university, because I really said, you know, I have, you know, I would have maybe 100 to 120 students a semester and um most of they were lovely students i did have some devout christians of various kinds occasionally a coptic christian occasionally an orthodox christian occasionally devout protestant or catholic so i did have some who really appreciated what i did but the majority were just taking it to fulfill a requirement so i said what's the best use of my time to to give to these, you know, five or six students in the class that really loved it, or to write books and to travel and leave something behind for the majority of Orthodox who don't have mm -hmm. a lot. We just, we don't have a lot of materials in English, yeah. frankly, good ones. We don't. Yeah, and certainly the books that you've written are unique. Um, to segue into, into your book, um, mm -hmm. What is, just to kind of close the loop on this topic, what is the Orthodox kind of mindset, understanding of the role of women in the church as teachers? Because some will say, you know, some take St. Paul's admonition that women should stay silent in the church and go home and ask their husband questions. Uh, you don't strike me as that type. So, <laughs> well. And the question I would say, if, any, if there's an Orthodox person who says that, I would say, uh, are you sure you're Orthodox? And they would say, why? I say, because aren't you supposed to read what the fathers say about that? You see, that idea that women are to stay silent is not patristic. Mm -hmm. That's coming from the Protestants. And there are some Protestant denominations. I've met women who came from those. There was one who told me that literally, Women were only allowed to teach other women. And if anyone walked in the room, even a boy, 
he had to take over the class. That was the rule. That's how ridiculous this is. A 10-year-old boy would take over? Yes. <laughs> As opposed to a woman. I'm not, and I was, I, my jaw dropped. But that's how extreme yeah. these fundamentalist Protestants could be about the role of women because they believe they're upholding the Bible. So let's talk about that. When Paul said, when St. Paul says a woman must, I do not allow a woman to speak in the church. Um, here's one of the things that, that differentiates the fathers and the Orthodox from the Protestants. Protestants will take one verse out of context and they build a whole theology around that one verse. The fathers didn't do that. The fathers were smart enough to understand the Bible and to interpret it in its context. So St. John Chrysostom says, um, is Paul saying that no woman can teach? No, he's not saying that. Because earlier in chapter 11, that that comes later. You know, I think it's, uh, it's 1 Corinthians, I want to say 14, uh, someplace where he says that. Uh, in chapters 11 and 12 is where he's really talking about the problems of worship in the Corinthian community, where people were not showing reverence. And this is where he talks about women covering their head when they prophesy. Well, if they're prophesying, that means they're speaking in church. And later in chapter 14, he talks about them talking, speaking in tongues. So there he's talking about being reverent in church. This mm -hmm. is Chrysostom's conclusion, not mine. That's Chrysostom, who's the greatest expositor of the scriptures the church has ever known. And so he says, St. Paul is saying that women should not carry on conversations. In the church, he took it as normal talking. So if they have a question, they ask their husbands at home. In other words, rather than when there's a worship service going on and they're reading the scriptures, they don't say, what did he say? <laughs> okay. And let's carry out, you know, have you ever been at a dinner party where first the discussion is everybody's together having one discussion, then somebody breaks off and before you know it, you have two or three or four different yeah. conversations around the table. That's what mm -hmm. he's talking about. That's Chrysostom. Okay, so... Obviously, he, he takes it from that and, and from the fact that St. Paul, so he considers the context and the historical context in which we know that St. Paul had female helpers, including Priscilla, who were teachers. So to say that women are never meant to teach in the church, and of course, he also talks about, we also have the example of women teaching their husbands, the role reversal, including St. Gregory, St. Chrysostom doesn't talk about this. But Gregory the theologian's father, who was also named Gregory, became a bishop of the church, but he was a pagan when he and Gregory's mother got married, okay? He was a pagan. It was mm -hmm. Nona, Gregory the theologian's mother, who made him a Christian, and she was the one who instructed him in the faith, and later he would become a bishop. But she was the one who taught him. And so there, we have definitely no, there's no restriction on a woman from teaching, period. And from preaching, actually, too. And here's why. Now, this is just to take a moment here. Um, in the Catholic Church, this is not true. Women cannot preach in church ever in the Catholic Church, even if they're a theologian and the priest is not. Because I had men in my classes who were already ordained as Catholic priests, and yet they, were, they didn't have a theology degree. They might be completely uneducated, but as a priest, they were allowed to preach. We don't do that in Orthodoxy. I don't know about the Coptic tradition, but in the Greek church, if you do not have a theology degree, you don't preach. 
The priest does the services, but he doesn't preach if he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, and theology is much more than doing the services. So, um, in the, yeah, in the, in the Coptic church, uh, they do not have to have a theology degree to give a homily or sermon or any of that well, stuff. That might have been partly out of necessity, I don't know. But, um, and also you have a different sort of system in how you have your, your ordained priests and then you send them for theology. That's a different system. Um, but the point is that, that, that um, in the Orthodox Church, teaching, see the sermon is a teaching function. It's not a sacerdotal function. It's not a priestly function. The Catholics reserve all the teaching to the priests because they consider the priests the successors of the apostles. We consider the bishop the successor to the apostles. And mm -hmm. ultimately, it's the bishop's role to teach. But since we don't have a, a bishop in every parish, that responsibility is given to the priest. But if you have the permission of the priest and the permission of the bishop, and a theological education, you can preach in the Orthodox Church as a woman. And there are women theologians, a lot of them, in Russia and Romania and Greece, and they do a lot of the teaching in theology schools and high schools, and I think they do preaching too, and they they have television programs and things yeah. like this. So that's, it's a wonderful thing that for us, what matters is whether or not you're qualified and whether you have the bishop's permission. And if you do, then not only you can teach, but you can preach in the church. So Chrysostom and the scriptures do not say that women cannot teach. That's number one. Now, there's another passage that they love to cite. And that is in 1 Timothy in which St. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authentia over a man. And that word is normally translated as authority. That's not the word for authority. And the word for authority is exousia. Now, that is a very special word. And it means the authority of a bishop. And mm. Chrysostom says that. She cannot preach with the authority over a man, at, basically from the vima, as a bishop. That word is limited to people with absolute authority. That's used only for kings and bishops. So we don't have a word in English to reflect that. That's why it's usually translated as authority. They don't know how else to translate it. But Chrysostom, again, is the one who says that this does not forbid women from teaching, but only from the, from the Vima, which is where the, is the place of the bishop. Okay? So there you go. So do you think... Uh in the Coptic church, and I'm sure you haven't studied this, that it's primarily cultural? Because I've never seen a, I've never seen or heard of a woman giving a, a homily, a, a homily during, a, during the yeah. divine liturgy. Is it's that, have, have you done that? I have done that, but it's more common, if I'm going to preach, that they ask me to preach at the end. Because giving the, I'll do whatever the priest says. And sometimes they've asked me to preach after the gospel, and I've done that. But usually the, after the gospel is reserved for the priest or the bishop. I was just at a church over the past weekend, and the bishop preached the sermon, and then I spoke after the divine liturgy. But I was still robed, and I was in the church, 
and I treated it like a sermon and I've given sermons. Okay. So in terms of the Coptic church, there, there is a bit of a different tradition. And I think that I don't know that the Russians allowed that. The Russians tend to be a bit more conservative, but to tell you the truth, the Russians are more influenced by the Catholic church than the Greeks are. And I think the cops are also um, because the Russians were very close to France and there was a lot of French influence. There's a lot of Catholic influence in Russian theology. And I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm a Greek. This was said by famous Russians like Florovsky and Schmemann. They called this the Western captivity of Russian theology. So there's a, there, the Russians tend to be much more conservative and much more restrictive of the roles of women in the church. And in that way, they tend to mirror the Catholics. And I do believe that that's an influence of Catholicism. So I don't know okay. what the, whether that's the case for the yeah. Coptic Church, but it would be good for the Coptic Church and for the Russian Orthodox. I'm hoping that the Russians will loosen up a little bit over time. It's good for us to give a women the opportunity to, to be more visible in the church. The Russians, to my understanding, they don't even have women read the epistle, and that's ridiculous, if you ask me. Okay, that's just my opinion. Maybe I should say that out loud, but I do think women should be allowed to read the epistle. There's, there's really no reason, but they don't allow that. And that's also, then the Catholics do, I was going to say, Catholics do have women readers, so I don't know. I'm not sure. If, but if a woman a, in the Coptic church read any uh, any church reading, that'd be a scandal. I think. Well, yeah. you know, maybe in time they will say, or maybe you'll just keep that as your tradition. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter so much. It's just that it, because we cannot become priests, it's good, or even deacons, you know, um, I, don't, I don't really personally see the harm in that. And um, rather than creating, um, rather than saying, I, I don't really see the reason why they can't read. I, I don't really see it. It's not really a liturgical function. They're chanting. Aren't they singing in church? Aren't there yeah. choirs? Okay, if they sing, they should be able to read. Reading and chanting was the same thing. So as long as we have women singing in church, there, there's really no reason why they can't read the epistle. Mm -hmm. Uh, beyond that, I'm not advocating anything else. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, that's just. I guess in I guess in our church, the only persons who should be reading are actual kind of in the kind of the deacon rank. So. Oh well, do you have women deacons in that? I know what you call no, a deacon is not what we no, call no. a deacon. Yeah, we just have you women chanters. We don't have like. Do you? But your deacons, the deacons are are those like what they call servants? Uh, what the do you mean by servants? The deacons read the epistle. Deacons read the epistle. Deacons read the gospel for us. <laughs> to, well, to be honest, it's kind of a, we kind of, we don't really abide by any of the rules. So, yeah. you know, it could be a 10-year-old okay, so, kid who's just a chanter reading. Um, but, well, that, you see, you see my point? Yeah. If you're going to have a 10-year-old boy, why, why not have a woman who could really read properly? Because when... Um, the, the, I, I, look, I, I'm not. You're gonna start to, problems, Jeannie. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to start a problem, but let me just explain to you. I understand this because when I was growing up in the Greek Orthodox Church, we didn't see women chanting, and we didn't see women reading the epistle either. Okay, so.
So sometimes it just takes a little time, but I just want to say this about that. Um, there is there the ancient church did tonsure people, and mm -hmm. I, I think it would be perfectly appropriate to tonsure a woman. That's up to the bishop to decide if they want to do that. I'm not advocating that. That's your guys' church and your tradition. But yeah. the epistle is important, and I don't like it. When I go to church, I've been to a lot of churches, and they would just hand the epistle off to an altar boy to read it, and he reads it too fast, and he can't be heard, and he doesn't really know what he's saying. And he can't, he doesn't pronounce Colossians, he says Colosseans or something like that. <laughs> or they mispronounce words because it's a kid. Uh, to me, to me, that's wrong because you're not giving the proper um, respect to that scripture. So I, I actually was training readers in one of our parishes, and some of them were kids, but they knew how to read. And we practiced it. We actually had a Sunday school class for readers and they came and they bought, had a robe and they knew when to begin. They knew how to begin. They knew where to face. They knew to be loud. They knew to pause if there was a disturbance. You see what I'm trying to say? There's an right. art to reading and it's important. And if you just give it to somebody because he's a boy, to me, that's, I'm sorry. I think that's disgraceful. So no offense yeah. to the cops, but no, no, I, 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 uh, we're in agreement there for sure. So for anyone who's listening, all of your responses <laughs> yes, have, directly have, to me. Yeah. I love the cops. I have to say I'm a big admirer of the Coptic Church. I think uh, this is a really special church because it's, one, it's a church that's really under persecution still today. Uh, you're really living to be a Christian in Egypt. It's, it's really, I can't even imagine it. And I know a lot of people have suffered a lot for their faith and you still have martyrs there. Yeah. I mean, this is a very special thing. It's a true, uh, it's really, really living the true Christian life. So I'm not intending to be um, disrespectful or anything like that. And of course, I've taught, I taught for the Coptic Orthodox School of Theology for a long time and uh, have a lot of respect for, for the Coptic tradition as an ancient church. I mean, I don't yeah. have any walls of that. But it is something that, that um, we maybe have a, a little bit farther along in recognizing the the talents of women and what can be allowed for women to do rather than discouraging them um it's good to allow them to blossom and study theology and perhaps do some reading and chant in church if in the future the coptic church thinks that's you know something acceptable right thank you and so all of your responses so far uh, have been informed by not just the scriptures. You, you know, you're you're drawing on Saint John Chrysostom, yeah, yeah. early church experience, etc. And this is kind of the topic of of your of your book, thinking Orthodox, um, understanding and acquiring the Orthodox mind. Can you explain what that means, the Orthodox mind, and what Orthodox fronum is, as as you use yes. that word in the book? Okay. Yes. Um, The orthodox mind is the attitude that we have about the church and the teachings of the church. And what that is, to, to be perfectly um, clear, is that we believe that we should preserve apostolic tradition and teaching, that we don't change the church. 
because we think it should be changed. And that's kind of funny since I was just talking about women and what I think it should happen. But in the early church, we did have women teachers, okay? And um, women prophesizing and speaking in church. So I think I'm okay with there, okay? But the point is that um, we think about our faith differently. We approach theology differently than Western Christians. Western Christians will analyze something and arrive at a, a rational explanation they will arrive at a conclusion based on their own human reasoning. We don't do that. So if something is contrary to human reasoning, but it's what the church has always taught, then we say, well, we're going with what the church says. It doesn't matter whether or not I have a different opinion or I think that my reasoning is better. We preserve the apostolic faith. That's the most important thing to us. And that's why sometimes it's very difficult for Orthodox Christians to explain themselves. They have, you know, Protestants are talking and Catholics are talking and, and they're saying, well, why do you do this? And we're like, well, that's tradition. But it's more than simply we love our tradition. It's because we believe that that's what Christ gave the apostles and that's why we keep it. And sometimes we can't always articulate some rational reason for why the female priesthood is a, is a good example of that. Why shouldn't women be priests? Well, you could argue they're half of the population. They have grace. You know, they, they are capable of doing ministerial work as we see them doing lots of other things. Uh, if you take it on a purely rational basis where people say, well, they couldn't have accepted women back in the times of Christ or whatever, they have all kinds of reasons. Yeah. There's really no rational reason why women can't be priests. There is one thing. The early church didn't have them. Okay, that's enough for me. I don't need a reason. I just trust that Christ knew what he was doing. He put the church in charge of these men. They preserved apostolic teaching. And for whatever reason, I think there are reasons for it. But I would be speculating. We don't know them. Okay. Right. And so that's reason enough. Yeah. So you have the papacy. Then let's take that. So the, the Catholics think the Catholics don't understand us. They think, oh, the Orthodox are just stubborn. They know we're right, but they won't concede that we're right. Why do they think that they're right and we believe them? Because they give us all kinds of reasons. Matthew 16 and John 20 and this, 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 And there's a kingdom and there has to be a king for the kingdom. They'll give you a whole list of reasons why there should be this monarchical papacy. And Jesus left the, church, the whole church of the whole world um, all Christians in charge of St. Peter. They'll give you all kinds of reasons. Those reasons mean nothing to me because we know that the early church didn't have that kind of authority vested in the Bishop of Rome. We know that. So I don't care what reasons you give. I don't care if it's logical to you. What we go by is what the early church always said and believed. And this has been our salvation because you look at Western Christianity and it's a mess. Yeah. It's a total mess. Why? Because they have abandoned the apostolic faith. They don't no longer have the fronima. So you as a lawyer or me as a lawyer, somebody as an engineer or a doctor, we can be perfectly rational and critical in our thinking in every other sphere of life. But when it comes to the church, we abide by what the church says because we trust the church. We trust the church because we know that it has preserved the ancient apostolic faith. Why is it that the Coptic church 
has been separated from us longer than the Catholics have been separated from us. We have been in schism between us for at least 1,500 years. We, I don't really count the 451 because there was no schism for at least 100 years after that. I don't know if you're aware of that. But schism is when you have two bishops yeah. in the same city, right? So initially, they tried to mend the disagreement, but then somebody ordained a, um, a non-Chalcedonian bishop in the same city as a then then there was a schism. So for 1,500 years, we've been in schism. We've only been in schism with the Catholics. And maybe we could say that you've never been in schism with the Catholics, because, although you're not in union with them. You never really had a falling out with the Catholic Church, right? So why is it that we are closer and actually practically identical um, than we are with the Catholics? Because the Catholics lost the apostolic thronima. Yeah. They started using human reasoning and started diverging in their opinions and their theology and their spirituality and everything else. Our monasticism is the same as your monasticism. Okay, our spirituality is the same. Our interpretation, the fathers, it's the same. Okay. You attribute a lot of that to Augustine. Yes, you know, that, everybody right? knows that that's Augustine. That the roots of the divergence is with the person of Augustine, who began mm -hmm. to use human reasoning and theology. This is that came from Augustine, and then because he was so prominent in the West, everybody began. Everybody was reading him and following his model of argumentation for theology, and that that took root in the West. So, what it's is the role of reason and and rational thinking? Well, in, we in, in are, the Orthodox pronema. That's a good question. As you know, the fathers and the prayers of the Church, at least in the Greek Orthodox Church, they call us the reason-endowed sheep, right? We are supposed to use our qualities of reason. That is to think and understand and, and make decisions that are based on free will and not at, follow our animal instincts, okay? We do not use reason when it comes to arriving at theological conclusions, okay? That's, that's where we draw the line. Obviously, the fathers of the church were very rational, very intelligent. We're not opposed to the use of reasoning. We're not, but we don't arrive at conclusions that differ from or depart from the tradition of the church just because it makes sense to us. Okay, that's the difference. So that's what, what we mean. The fathers, mm -hmm. the church has already decided all of the theology of the church. There's nothing new to be discovered. There's nothing new to be articulated. We know about Christ. We have the Trinity the procession of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, Theodokos, and all that, there's really nothing new to articulate, mm -hmm. theologically speaking. That's one reason why we haven't had a ecumenical council for a long time. Yeah. There's nothing to really resolve. You share an interesting story in your book that I think uh, highlights the point you made earlier about the Coptic Church being closer in terms of mm -hmm. phronema to the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholics, you share a story about a baptism you went to yeah, and there was a Coptic woman there. Can you share yeah. that story and, and why that's relevant? Yes, um, because, uh, yes, I was a godmother at a baptism and um, this, uh, the, it was an adult baptism. So the woman being baptized was, you know, fully grown and whatnot. And I brought the sheets and the towels and everything like this. And she had been chrismated and all the rest. And um, afterwards, we have these wet towels and sheets. And she said, 
to me, the newly illumined said to me, what do I do with these? And because this was in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is in the Boston area, I said, take it to the ocean and wash it out. Okay. And when my friend heard this, she was overjoyed. She said, we are the same. We are the same. We're the same. Because we had this reverence for the sacrament of chrism that was still somehow probably on the sheets and towels. And you don't just throw that in the washing machine and have it go into the sewer. We go to a natural body of water and we wash it out. And that, and that must be, I never asked any Copt if that's their tradition, but since she heard that and responded with such enthusiasm, I'm assuming that that is your tradition. Right. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living, living bodies of so water. If, if we still do that, and that's a little thing. Mm -hmm. We've been separated 1,500 years. I can assure you the Catholics don't do that. The Catholics, first of all, yeah. they, they baptize, they let deacons baptize babies. Did you know that? No, I didn't know. Deacons can wow. marry people and baptize babies. A deacon is not a priest. A deacon has no ability to bless they don't, they don't even, I'm sure when you do a baptism, you bless the water in the font, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The priest has to do that. The person is immersed in holy water, not just any old water, in holy water. That requires a priest. Yeah. They don't even immerse, of course, they sprinkle. You know what I'm trying to say? So yeah. look at the difference. We're so careful to preserve even these little things. You can be certain that we're preserving much bigger things. You have this quote in your book. You say, an invasion is taking place more serious than any invasion of migrants streaming across borders. And you live in San Diego, so that's a, yes. that's a strong statement. And you're in, you're in where, L.A.? I'm in, I'm in L.A., yeah. Okay, well, they're, they're all, most of them are just passing through San Diego. They're going up to you there in, in L.A. Right. But it's happening in, in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. In Greece, they were having a lot of migration in Italy. So it wasn't just a, yeah. you know, a but, California thing or U.S. thing. Yeah. So, but I think in this quote, you're referencing the invasion of our minds being greater right. than with, with mm -hmm. kind of More media, stuff. news, right. uh, music. Um, with all that infiltration. Yes. yes. Do you worry that these even little minor traditions, mm -hmm. such as the, the baptism yeah. thing we just talked yeah. about, are not going to be preserved? Because I don't know if the younger generations right. care. I, I mean, not. so do you worry the Orthodox Phronima is, is going to be lo like lost among the yeah. younger um, generation? Yeah. I think it's incumbent upon us to teach this to our kids. And that's that's the parents' responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um. I never really thought, you know, I know that this, that is an issue because, especially because converts are coming to the church now. And you as cops, you're also seeing Western converts to your church, yeah. right? So who's teaching them about these little things? For example, I was, I, when I grew up, I knew not to ever cross my knees, my, my legs in church at the knee. We don't do that. Do you, do you do that? Do you know that? Uh, were you ever told not to cross your legs in church or to stand with your hands in your pockets in church? I was never told that, no. I just. So, do you ever notice? Just notice when you go to church. 
Yeah, I mean, we I don't do it, but I just no one taught me that. Yeah. We we were taught you don't cross your knees, your legs, and the knees because it shows an attitude of yeah. casualness right. before God. That's why you don't hold put your hands in your pockets in church. Oh, I mean, my don't don't get me wrong. My dad would uh, give me a well, one behind the, the ear if I if even if I was looking backwards during the divine liturgy. Oh, well, if go. I wasn't looking, if I wasn't looking towards the east, towards the altar. There you um, go. Yeah. So the point is who but who's teaching people this, especially when yeah. they're they're converts. So I do think it's important that there are these little things, it's not that it's the most important thing, but it, it's just it's part of our orthodox shaping that we, we learn these things and we, we teach them to our kids and to tell them, you know, um when you know the anniversary of somebody's death, you make the memorial weed and you ask the priest to go to the cemetery to say a prayer at the grave. Is anybody doing that? Is anybody teaching that? I don't think so. So I do, I am concerned about that. I'm hopeful yeah. that perhaps this is something that I think the converts in many ways may save us because once they're told what to do, they want to do it. And they're not, um, they're not apathetic and they will probably start teaching these things to their kids. Yeah. But it's, At least it's, among the cradle Orthodox uh, in the Coptic church, because we're living in this Western society and going to school in the West, yep. everything has to be explained and there needs to be a reason yes. for everything. So to me, that seems like a conflict, um, yep. you know, and I think a lot of parents just don't have enough. They're not, you know, they don't study this stuff. They, they were handed it down. Right. But right. if you ask them, why can't I put my hands in my pocket in church you know or you know why why can't a woman you know do this or that i mean they're not going to have real good reasons for it and i think that's probably true and i'm sure if i asked my parents or my grandparents they couldn't explain these things to me they couldn't give me the reason they just said that's who we that's what we are that's what we do that's not a good answer but in those days uh kids didn't expect they were. They just did what they were told. You're right, absolutely right, that we don't live in that kind of a culture. We don't want to do something unless we think there's a good reason for it. That's a, that's a Western fronima. One of the things that we could do ourselves when we have that temptation not to do something because we don't understand the reason for it is to stop ourselves and repent of that and say, this is what the church has handed down. Ask God to illuminate for us so that we can understand what the reason is for us. As adults, we can do that. When it comes to our kids, you can say to your kid, let's, let's make a list of all the things we don't understand. And as we're going through the, you know, our days and put it on the refrigerator, and then we'll invite father so-and-so to the house for dinner, and we'll ask him these questions, and we can learn something. Or you go to your parish Bible study, or you look it up. So there are ways to learn about these things that we didn't have before. Yeah. One of the reasons that our grandparents, our ancestors were ignorant is because they were under persecution by the Muslims or by the, by the Egyptians. They were just struggling to survive day to day. They didn't have access to this. Today we have access to all kinds of information. <laughs> and our, our clergy, and you can say, it's not in the case of the cops, um, because sometimes you ordain a person and then you give them a theological education. The priest may not know the answers, but you could say, Father, we'd like you to come over. Do you think you could be prepared to answer these questions? At least give him a chance to be yeah. prepared and say, where can I find out the answer to these questions? 
And then the parents are educated and the children are educated. But we have to make an effort. But we don't say, oh, well, I don't I see the reason for it, so I'm not going to do it. That's Protestant. Yeah. That's so it's, totally Protestant. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like a core uh, part of uh, proper Orthodox phronema has to be humility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Number one. Absolutely number one. Mm -hmm. And there, in the book, one of the early stories I tell is about this nun who who um, did not understand what she read in the story of the life of a saint, thought this is impossible, this couldn't have happened. And rather, and she didn't know what to do with that information because she was a convert. And rather than saying, well, either this is a pious legend or I just have to accept it, uh, she asked God to illuminate her and he did, okay? So this is the attitude that we need to have rather than just saying, oh, that's not possible, that's impossible, or I'm not gonna believe that, I can't do that. Yeah. We are supposed to try to become better, to become more faithful. That's how the saints became saints. Okay, not by right. rejecting, because the church has been, a, I'm gonna, we're going to close with this because I'm going to have to go. Sure. The, the church has been around for a long time. So I just want to ask you, do you remember when you were a kid and you, the thoughts, the kinds of thoughts you had, the kinds of ideas you had that you thought were brilliant and wonderful and they were really dumb, Okay. Okay, you as a kid, we've all had those, we all remember some of the things we did, some of the things we thought that we thought was perfectly rational, and it is from your child's mind. The church is like your mother. Your mother's been around. Your mother would say, oh, this is, that's a bad idea. Your mother stopped you from disaster, or maybe she never found out the dumb thing you did. <laughs> your mother would have known better because she's been around for a while. She's yeah. lived her life. She has experience. The church has been here for 2,000 years. It knows right from wrong. It knows what works. It knows, even if we don't know, why we do these things. The reasons why may be lost on us, but that doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. It just means we're not mature. We're babies. And this is part of our problem. You mentioned before humility, which is an excellent point. Because you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, this guy's a doctor, this guy's a, an engineer, this person's a pharmacist. We think we should be able to understand everything because we're accomplished and educated in our lives outside the church. But when we sit in front of the church, we're like little babies. Mm. And we should listen and observe and learn. That's what we should be doing. That's the Orthodox phenomenon. Okay. Uh, awesome. Yeah, well, let's end on that. And uh, thanks so, so much for... My this pleasure. Conversation. It's, wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's wonderful to, to spend some time with you and, and um, talk about these things. And I wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Doctor. Thank you. Yeah.